Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Wine and Gold Talk podcast. I am your host, Hayden Grove, joined, as always, by our Cavaliers beat reporter, Chris Fedor, who is in Oklahoma City, where the Cavaliers will take on the Thunder tonight, the second night of a back-to-back Cavaliers winners over the Houston Rockets on Thursday night. Um, and, Chris, I'm going to start off hot. We're going to start off We're going to start off really hot. We're going right okay. in. All we're right. Going right in. Because last year at this time, yeah. On January, uh, let's see, what was it? It was January 30th. The Cavaliers lost the Detroit Pistons um, to take their record to 30 and 20. Yeah. And today, January 27th, the Cavaliers have a record of 30 and 20. Yeah. So after 50 games, they have the same record. Now, you know, we all know that it's about how you finish, right? It's about, right. you know, finishing the, the job done. But what do you make of that? The fact that they had the same record last year as they do this year, um, adding Donovan Mitchell um, and maybe another year under their belt, but the same record. I don't make a whole bunch of it, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, I thought the Cavs got off to a really good start last year, and there were a lot of um, reasons for optimism that they were turning the corner and they had a lot of things that that were built into their success. But um at the same time, like if you dug deeper into the numbers, you probably felt like it wasn't as sustainable. Um, it was shortly after Ricky Rubio had gotten injured and lost for the season and probably going to get traded at the deadline. And obviously they didn't have Colin Sexton. So like the numbers and the record may be similar, but but I don't think the sustainability of last year's team versus this year's team is even close. And here's an example. So right now, the Cavs are second in the NBA in net rating. And I know sometimes, Hayden, people don't like these nerdy stats, but they're second in the NBA in net rating behind just the Boston Celtics. And the Boston Celtics have the league's best record. Um, And the Cavs are one of a few teams that are top 10 in offense and top 10 in defense. They've got the number 10 offense and they've got the number one defense. Last year, they were bottom 10 in offense. Last year, they weren't second in net rating. Last year, they didn't hold 15 teams below the 100 point mark at this point of the season. So to me, like, yeah, the record is the same. But there are a lot of differences between the two teams. And this one is better from a talent perspective. I think it's better from a depth perspective. And I think overall performance-wise, beyond just the record, it's better and more sustainable and more lasting. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. It's just kind of, you know, interesting to look at, given that, you know, they've yeah. they've lost some very winnable games. They've you know, underperformed at times, but you're right. They do have that, you know, all the numbers are pointing in their direction, um, you know, and they are uh, tied for the fourth seed in the Eastern Conference right now, which is, you know, exactly where they want to be. Um, the 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 one that, as I look at the, you know, at the kind of the, the standings and, and where they are, you said, like you said, mm-hmm. net rating is second in the uh, Eastern Conference. In the NBA, Boston. too. Yeah, but it, right, behind Boston. Um, and... That the thing that is so striking is the twenty and five home record, and the ten yeah. and fifteen away record. Yeah, I mean, what is there anything that you can point to as to why 
things are so drastically different for them, you know, at home and on the road. I mean, look at you look at the Brooklyn Nets. Okay, the Brooklyn Nets are, are twenty nine and nineteen. They're thirteen and eight at home, and they're sixteen and eleven on the road. Right. Milwaukee is nineteen and five at home. They're twelve and twelve on the road. You know, no team is even uh, the the Heat are sixteen and nine at home, eleven and thirteen on the road. But I mean, the, it's just such right. a drastic difference. What is it about the Cavaliers on the road that is kind of you know? Uh, pushing them back towards, you know, the latter half of the playoffs picture than the uh, upper half. I think there are a few things, Hayden. I think there's a reality attached to the Cavs that does not exist with Boston, with Milwaukee, with Brooklyn, and with Philadelphia. And we've talked about this a lot. And I know people are tired of hearing it, and they don't want to hear it. But it's true. It is a young team that is still learning a lot as they go. It's a young team that needs to experience certain things that these other upper echelon teams in the Eastern Conference have already experienced in the past. Like Milwaukee, Boston, Philadelphia, and Brooklyn, they've all gone through things together as a group that the Cavs are seeing for the first time this year in the regular season. So I think that's part of it. I think when you're young and inexperienced, those issues that you have are going to show up more on the road. You're not going to understand how to best handle things in a difficult environment. You're not going to um, best understand like what it takes in possession to possession games um, when the crowd is not on your side, fueling you in a third quarter or fourth quarter run, things along those lines. Um, I think the, the other thing that we have to look at is Five of those losses, five of them, came early in the season, early November to mid-November. And that was a time that the Cavs were figuring a lot out, right? At that point, they had Karis LeVert as their starting small forward instead of Lamar Stevens or Isaac Okoro. Um, at that point in time, the Cavs um, were trying to understand how to best use Darius and Donovan Mitchell together. Together, um, Darius and Donovan were trying to figure it out together. So there were a lot of things that they had to learn on the fly. J.B. Bickerstaff was learning his rotations. Who best fits with who? What's the best offensive set to go to in a late game situation? And they crumbled down the stretch against the, the, the Clippers. And they didn't perform well down the stretch against Sacramento or Golden State. So, like, there were certain things tied to those five losses on the road um, that I think were just natural growing pains that this team was going to have to go through at the beginning of the season. Always. They were always going to have to learn on the fly. They were always going to have to experiment and tinker with lineups and rotations to find the right combinations and figure out who's the best starting lineup, who's the best closing group. Um, what's the best play to go to in a late game situation? What's the best set to go to in a late game situation? Should it be Darius? Should it be Donovan? Um, should it be Evan Mobley? So I think we can't ignore the fact that five of those road losses came really, really early in the season when the Cavs were trying to figure things out. Now, that doesn't mean that they have it figured out, and it doesn't mean that they've been that much better on the road as the season has gone on. But I think those two factors to me, um, that's why they have the road record that they have. Um, but at the same time, 
they have to prove that they can be a better road team. Right. Because their road record is just, it's awful compared to the other top teams in the Eastern Conference. Right. That's very true. Um, you know, you mentioned Isaac Okoro and Karis LeVert. Yeah. This is also kind of the first time the Cavaliers, you know, with Dean Wade, have been healthy rotationally. Um, you know, it seems like finally they have their their full allotment of guys, and maybe that's an opportunity for them to start to figure it out. I mean, you know, Donovan Mitchell's been hurt, which, you know, negates my point to a point. Uh, <laughs> you know, that they're not that they're not rotationally healthy, but yeah. like. You they're know, more healthy than they've been. Though. Right, they're more There's, they're more healthy than they've been. So, yeah, um, an opportunity there to maybe you know go forward here and see how things are going to go with this somewhat healthy uh, rotation that they have going on. So this is interesting because to your point, you're right. Like they're more healthy than they've been. Um, it's funny because. I have a trusted source who throughout the course of the day leading into a game, I'll hit and say, hey, what's it looking like for X player, Y player, Z player in terms of their status going into the game? And like there have been points over the last two weeks that that hasn't been as necessary, right? right. But early on in the season, it was every single game day because there were so many different names on that injury report. Um, so I, I I do understand what you're saying, even though, you know, Donovan and Kevin Love up in the air and Ricky Rubio not playing back-to-backs and still monitoring his minutes and things along those lines. The injury report, um, the names on that that injury report aren't nearly as long as, as what they have been throughout the course of the season. And J.B. Bickerstaff said it the other day, Hayden, like, I've got to figure this out. Like, it's on me to figure this out. Um, but he also said that he does not plan on expanding his rotation to 10 or 11 guys, even 12 guys. He's most comfortable with an eight or a nine-man rotation. Um, that's what he believes in. That's what he thinks is best for him. And that's what he thinks is best for the Cavs. And that means difficult decisions. And that means some stretches, some guys just aren't going to play. They're going to be bumped from the rotation. And they're just going to have to be ready again when their number is called. I think the reality is um, there are guys in this rotation that J.B. Bickerstaff trusts more than other ones. Um, Kevin Love, one of them. Karis LeVert, another one. Ricky Rubio, another, and I do believe that there is a trust factor attached to Dean Wade. Like, there were big plans for Dean coming into this season. There were people inside the organization, Hayden, that believed he should have been the starting small forward coming out of training camp. And there are still people that think it's only a matter of time before he gets that that starting small forward opportunity that he hasn't gotten for a majority of this season, for a variety of reasons, too. So. That means the playing time for Jetty Osman is going to continue to fluctuate. The playing time for Lamar Stevens, who is basically a facsimile of Isaac Okoro, is going to continue to fluctuate. It's going to be circumstantial. It's going to be based on matchups. It's going to be based on situation. 
it's going to be based on game planning and, and what the Cavs need in a specific moment. At the end of the game, if the Cavs need a jolt of offense, they're probably going to lean on somebody like Jetty Osman to see if he can provide that spark. At the end of a game, if they need an influx of defense or toughness, then they're going to go with Lamar Stevens instead. So I just think it's going to continue to be like that as J.B. Bickerstaff experiments with different combinations and tries to find, okay, what's the right way to go about this? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it makes sense for sure. Um, and you mentioned, you know, that guys will go in and out um, based on, you know, game plan, based on the flow of the game. But, I mean, the eight guys are pretty set. Is Dean Wade one of those eight guys? I mean, is he well, a guy that's going to, you know, just be, you know, set in that rotation for most of the time? All right, so if they go nine or if they're limiting Kevin Love's minutes yeah. or if J.B. Bickerstaff makes the difficult decision to go away from Kevin Love more because he's in the middle of a career-worst season and he hasn't been able to shoot since injuring his thumb, then Dean Wade is the eighth guy, right? Yeah. But if he continues to trust Kevin Love, then Dean Wade is like the fringy ninth guy. That's just the way that it's going to be. Um, I asked J.B. Bickerstaff on Wednesday before they left for Houston when they practiced at the NBPA um, in New York. I said, look, Kevin is having the worst season of his career, but it's clear that you trust him. And there's a reason why you trust him. How do you balance um, the decision to continue to go with him when you're not getting the production that you're used to? but you know what he's accomplished in his career and you believe in him in a different kind of way. And JB said, quote, I think it's again conversations that we have to continue to have with everybody. And there's an understanding. We know what he's capable of. We know what we can do to help him get there. And whether he gets there with the opportunities or not, we'll see. But I think that's something you just have to continue to work through. Um, and I talked to JB following last night's game against Houston, where Dean Wade was very impactful. Um, he was shooting the ball well from the outside. He was spacing the floor. He was playing good defense. He was doing all the things that, that Dean has done throughout the course of this year when healthy. Um, there's a clear advantage to him being on the court, especially if he's going to shoot the way that he has shot this year and the way that he did last night against Houston. And I said to JB, I said, hey, look, like how much of Dean Wade getting 23 minutes was just um, part of his recovery ramp up and him not having as much of a minute restriction and him having his wind back after being away for seven weeks to rehab shoulder and ankle injuries and how much of it was the fact that Kevin Love was not available because he had lower back spasms. And if it tied into Kevin, like, how do you make sure that Dean stays as involved when Kevin is healthy? And once again, JB said, that's something that we have to look at. That's something that we have to figure out. So I'm wondering just how long the leash is for Kevin Love at this point in time. He's accomplished a lot. He's very, very important to them, especially off the court with his leadership. Um, the guys have a great 
uh, amount of respect for him and admiration for him. But from a production standpoint, Dean Wade has been the better basketball player than Kevin Love. Dean Wade has been a better fit at both ends of the floor than Kevin Love. And I just don't know. I think it's something that we have to watch. And I don't know how J.B. Bickerstaff is going to navigate that. Yeah, I mean, with with Kevin, I think, you know, why not just let him get healthy? I mean, if he's if 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 you think or I mean, do they think it's more so the thumb than anything? Because before the thumb, he wasn't as bad. But right before the thumb, he was shooting the ball very well, um, both from the field and from three point range. The splits are striking. And that's part of the reason why I asked Kevin about it about a week ago when I went up to him in the locker room um, following one of the games. And I was just like, hey, man, I was looking at your splits um, before the thumb injury and after the thumb injury. Is this thing still bothering you? And then he told me that they they said it was going to. Um, feel uncomfortable for about six weeks, but it was something that he could play through and there was nothing that they could do about it. It's not an injury that was going to require surgery based on where the fracture was. It's not an injury that was really going to get significantly better with with consistent time off and rest and recovery. And there wasn't a whole bunch of treatment that was involved either. Just, you know, ice it periodically and give it time. Um, in saying that, they didn't sit him because Dean Wade was out too, and because they didn't have a better option to play that particular position. It was still best for the Cavs, even though he was shooting as poorly as he was during that stretch, Hayden. It was still best for the Cavs to have him out there. He was rebounding. He was spacing the floor. He was drawing attention from the defense, um, and they had no other power forward option. What were they going to do? Play Isaiah Mobley? Play Mamadi right. Diakite? This wasn't going to happen. With Dean Wade being out and Lamar Stevens isn't a full-time power forward, he just didn't have a lot of options. Right. Um, so the timing of it wasn't great with his thumb still not feeling right, him being uncomfortable shooting the ball, having to change his mechanics. That coincided with Dean Wade dealing with a significant shoulder injury. So Kevin had to play through it, and the Cavs had to give him minutes. But that is a little bit different right now because Dean Wade is now available and um, he doesn't have as much of a minute restriction and his conditioning is back closer to what it was. And um, I think it's going to be a tough decision. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine, you know, you're, you're going basically opposite in terms of Dean Wade, you're going off the potential and you're going off what he can be. And Kevin, Love, you're kind of going off what he's been. So it's it's definitely difficult um, in that regard. You know, Chris, uh, the one thing that that has been um, kind of brought up, and it's it's interesting, mm-hmm. there's been some criticism of J.B. Bickerstaff. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this team last year was very good under J.B., and J.B. has um, basically taken a team of young kids and, and made them into a defensive powerhouse. I mean, right. you know, they, they play great defense, and that's something that I think is very, very rare um, in the NBA, especially with young teams. But there seems to be a lot to be desired um, from people in regards to J.B. Bickerstaff. I don't think there's any sense in, you know, talking about his job security because I think, you know, that's, <laughs> that's not going anywhere. Um, yeah. But... You know, what can JB 
What is your assessment of JB? What can JB do better? What, you know, is there a ceiling for JB? I mean, what what is, we don't talk a lot about, you know, JB as a, as the, as the head coach of this team. And it's mm-hmm. kind of interesting to see some of the criticism of him. Where are you seeing this criticism? I'm just curious. I'm a friends and, and, and people, <laughs> on, people on social media and Twitter. You know. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So, some, some off of Twitter. I have some friends yeah. that, but like, you know, just, just fans in general. I'm not seeing it from, from, you know, fellow media members or anything like that. Again, it, it's, I think there is, you know, a sense of frustration during, you know, losing games and whatnot. But, yeah. you know, I, I, I'm just, I'm just addressing it because it is out there. So I think I'll start here. Hmm. Is this where I want to start? I'm trying to say this correctly. I, I think fans, in some ways. And maybe I'm partially responsible for this because I have labeled the Cavs a contender because I think everything points to them being a contender. But there are different levels of contender, right? And we've talked about that a number of different times. There are different levels of great. So even though I believe the Cavs are a contender, I have also said from the very beginning that they are not on the same tier and they don't belong on the same tier as the other four teams that we've talked about in the Eastern Conference, Brooklyn, Boston, Philly, and Milwaukee. Okay. So I think, I think fans to some degree, Hayden, have lost sight of, of who the Cavs are and what they are. This is still a growing, developing team. Like they are not the Milwaukee Bucks. Okay. They haven't won a championship together, and they don't have these guys where the clock is ticking on their contention window because maybe they have to trade one of them away, or maybe the owner is going to start making different kinds of decisions, or maybe Chris Middleton is going to walk in free agency at the end of the year, and they don't have a ticking clock like Brooklyn for a similar reason. You know what I mean? Like, there is space for the Cavs to grow into a team like that. They're all under contract through 2025, 26. They're all, the most important players are all 26 years old or younger. And I don't think we can look at them and treat them like they're Milwaukee, Brooklyn, Philly, and Boston with a a ticking clock. Yeah, I, I don't think we can treat them like those teams that are more, quote unquote, championship or bust, because that's not what this season is. This is not a championship or bust season for the Cavs. And and that also ties into the approach that they can, may and should take at the trade deadline. Like They don't have to make rash decisions about this team. Like if they can improve and they can find a better fitting piece, and they can find somebody who's going to be a clear-cut upgrade and somebody who's going to be in their nine-man rot- eight, nine-man rotation, okay, then explore it. Explore that possibility. But they're not in a situation where they're desperate to make a trade or they have to make a trade to shake things up because something's not working. As I said, they're second in the NBA in net rating. They're top 10 in offense and defense. They're 30 and 20. They're 10 games over 500. 
Like, yes, there have been moments of frustration throughout the course of the year, and I get it. I've called them out on it. I ripped them to shreds for their performance against the Golden State Warriors because they deserved it. I have talked about how bad they are on the road because they are, and they deserve that. When they went through that five-game losing streak and they had that horrible performance in Milwaukee that led to them having um, a lengthy chat in the visitors' locker room and a heart-to-heart and lineup changes, I talked about that. I chronicled that. J.B. Bickerstaff said at that point they developed a fat cat mentality. But here they are, 50 games in the season, and they're 10 games over to 500, despite the fact that they've used like 17 or 18 different starting lineups. <laughs> despite the fact that Ricky Rubio missed half the season while recovering from a torn ACL, and he was always going to be a fixture of the rotation. Despite the fact that Dean Wade, who the Cavs had big plans for, missed seven straight weeks with shoulder and ankle injuries. Despite the fact that Donovan Mitchell has now missed nine games. Like, those things can't be ignored in this big picture conversation about the Cavs. And I've spent, like, the last couple of weeks talking to JB, Karis LeVert, Donovan Mitchell, Darius Garland, Ricky Rubio, Kevin Love, about just how they avoid losing sight of the big picture when things in the short term aren't going as well um, as they would want or as fans would want. And their big takeaway is that, like, Chris, we're still young in terms of our togetherness. We're still learning things that these other teams have already learned. There is still a process in place for us to become the team that we want to become and we need to become. And in that frustration, and they get frustrated just like everybody else. In that frustration, they can't lose sight of that reality. And I don't think fans should either. You're right. You're right. And And this doesn't mean, Hayden, like this doesn't mean that J.B. Biggerstaff has been perfect. Like there are things about him to criticize. There is no doubt about that. There are things about him as an X's and O's coach, as an in-game manager, in-game adjustments, like all those different things. Like he's got a lot to prove in those realms. But at the end of the day, that shouldn't take away from the fact that he's got this team 30 and 20. They have bought in on the defensive end and they are the best defense in the NBA statistically. And they don't show any signs of, of backtracking significantly in that department. And he has laid a culture of togetherness, sacrifice, camaraderie. Like Kevin Love has called it an environment that reminds him very much of the title teams with LeBron. Like that's the kind of culture, that's the kind of environment that JB has created. And those things can't get overlooked because he's not, you know, Greg Popovich when it comes to X's and O's or Eric Spolstra when it comes to X's and O's. A big part of being a successful winning head coach in the NBA is managing personalities and pushing the right buttons. And I think for the most part, JB has done that. So for this still growing team that isn't yet in championship or bust mode, I think JB Bickerstaff is perfect. And if for a couple of years in a row, 
He shows a bunch of flaws when it comes to his offense, when it comes to his um, rotation management, when it comes to using timeouts the right way, after timeout plays, baseline out of bounds plays, sets in critical moments. And if there are like stumbles that are really, really apparent in a seven game series where he can't make the proper adjustments, okay, in a couple of years, we can have that conversation. And I think it's logical to have that conversation, but there's no sense in having it right now when the Cavs and JB haven't even gotten an opportunity to be in a playoff series to show ultimately what they can do in that kind of environment. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more with you. I think that's a it's a premature conversation, but you know there are there. It's I think it is important to you know to be critical where things need to be critical. And yeah, right. You mentioned you mentioned that um, you know there are some in game stuff, and you know mm-hmm. how does he you know is that something that he just will get better with over time, or is that something that you know needs to develop? I mean, how how does he improve upon? some of the in-game situational stuff that, you know, that 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 does seem to be the biggest criticism is the, you know, is the mm-hmm. in-game stuff, is the X's and O's, the out-of-bounds plays, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think he's going through things for the first time. I think he's experiencing um, adversity and complications for the first time. And I think there's a lot that that he still has to learn. Um, both about this team, the way that it's currently constructed, and about himself, too. So I think um, a big step for him, obviously, this past offseason was bringing in Luke Walton to kind of be one of his right-hand men. Um, And I think the more JB is in these kinds of positions, um, when the game is on the line, when it calls for him to be great, when it comes to in-game adjustments, when it calls for him to be great, when it comes to designing a play out of a timeout, like, I do think he can get better um, in those particular areas. Um, And if he doesn't, and if it's not something that he can just learn and grow from and get better from, then there's a deeper conversation that is going to uh, be had in the future. Um, But I think there's still a lot that we have to learn about J.B. Bickerstaff, the the pure basketball X's and O's coach. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there is definitely, I just think he's overly criticized. I mean, I just, because you're right. I mean, yeah, it it seems like these, these in-game stuff, it happens, but again, like there's so much more that he has done well that he's not done well. Right. And yeah. I don't know. It's just, I think it's something that needs to be brought up. And here's the other thing. Um, I think a lot of coaches are like this, Hayden. Um, They tinker a lot in the regular season. Yeah. Because in part, that's what the regular season is about. Now, the Cavs are in a different kind of position, right, where they have to fight for a playoff spot. Um, Um. they're tied for fourth in the Eastern Conference right now. So they have to continue to bank wins along the way. But the goal from the very beginning for for JB and for the Cavs is to be at their best in March, April, and May. And sometimes he's going to make baffling lineup decisions um, that don't work. 
that don't work at all. But the only way he can find find out whether they are going to work or not when it matters most is by trying it out and seeing what happens. Like last year, for example, there were so many people that had already judged JB on the decision to move Lowry Markin into the starting small forward spot, right? That completely changed everything for the Cavs, offensively and defensively. That was a huge move. It was unconventional. It was bizarre. And people were like, are you kidding me? Like, that's not going to work. And it worked. But the only way that he would have ever known to do that or even try that was by experimenting with it and seeing if it could work. Like, could we have predicted that Karis LeVert next to Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell as the starting small forward wasn't going to be the best, especially at the beginning of the season when Darius and Donovan were being used in a different way than what they had been used in in the past? Sure. Like, I think there were signs pointing to that being a wonky fit, but there was no way to know for sure without actually trying it. He couldn't have sat there and said, well, you know what? This isn't going to work, so I'm not even going to try it. I think you have to continue to brainstorm new ideas. I think you have to continue to try different five-man combinations, two-man combinations, three-man combinations, even four-man combinations. And some are going to work, and some aren't going to work. But you learn um, through success, and you learn from failure as well. You got to. You absolutely have to. You have to learn through both, for sure. I mean, that's the name of the game in any sport, is learning from failure. Right. Um, like, I I mean, I think at the time that he went with Lamar Stevens in the starting lineup as the starting small forward, people were like, are you kidding me? And then that led to the Cavs rediscovering their defensive identity. Right. So, again, not every decision that J.B. Bickerstaff makes is right. Not everyone moving forward is going to be right. And there are going to be times throughout the course of the game. Like the other night against New York, he played some weird lineup at the end of the third quarter or whatever, and it got completely boat raced by New York. And then the Knicks took a five-point lead in the fourth quarter. But, like, he wanted to try something out because what the game called for and because he hasn't had an opportunity to use that specific lineup this year. And maybe you can say that was the wrong time to do it. But he had to find out, is this going to work? Or is this not going to work in this kind of situation? So those things are going to continue to happen here over the final 32 regular season games Um, because he needs those answers. And the only way to get those answers is by trying it out and seeing what happens. Amen. Uh, Before we get going, Chris, I want to address and congratulate Donovan Mitchell, an Eastern Conference All-Star starter um, in the Eastern, as I said, Eastern Conference. Um, Well-deserved, I think very deserved. He's no longer in the West. Right. And, by the way, he's very happy that he's no longer in the Western Conference. I, I can imagine. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, for the next how many years? You got to go through Luka and Steph Curry just to become a starter in the Western Conference All-Star game? Shea Gilgis-Alexander is having an MVP-like season. Yeah, exactly. And he's not a starter in the Western Conference because he's blocked by Luka and Steph. He can yeah. say the same thing for John Morant. So Donovan, like, was joking with me in the locker room last night um, in Houston. He was like, thank God I'm no longer in the Western Conference. I've never been an all-star starter before. There you go. And he probably wouldn't be. No offense to Donovan. No, but I mean, he wouldn't be. 
given Luca and Steph, you're it's, it's yeah. very tough. Good luck breaking through that barrier. Jeez, you're right. You're right. Um, but he does. He gets the honor. And last night uh, after the game, he vouched for his teammate, Darius Garland, to be an all-star. And I guess that's the point that I want to kind of address. Um, is Darius Garland an all-star? He seems to think he is. Um, Donovan Mitchell seems to think he is. What What do you think he will end up, um, Do you know, will, do you think he will end up being an all-star for the Cavaliers? I do not. I think there are a couple of things working against him. Um, number one, the other options that um, that stand between him and a backcourt spot. And number two, like the Cavs aren't the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. They're not the number two seed in the Eastern Conference. Like usually you make an argument just on, on merit um, for a specific team getting two guys because of where they are in the standings. Now, things can obviously change before the coaches make their final vote, um, and that's going to be revealed on February 2nd, so another week or so. But, like, it's easier to make an argument that Boston deserves two because Boston's the best team in the NBA record-wise. It's easier to make an argument right now that Philly deserves two because they're higher than the Cavs in the standings. So the Cavs being where they are, um, I think that's working against Darius. And then as I laid out in my piece, okay, so if if there are seven total spots, um, two guards, three front court players, and two wild cards, if we do it like that, we start at seven. Embiid's getting one. Now we're down to six. Um, Jalen Brown is getting one. Now we're down to five. Tyrese Halliburton of the Pacers is getting one. Now we're down to four. He actually got my vote as the second backcourt starter next to Donovan Mitchell. Um, so he's in two. So now we're down to four spots. Um, and that means at most two in the backcourt because Halliburton and Brown are guards. Right. So. Darius or James Harden, Darius or DeMar DeRozan, Darius or Trey Young, Darius or Drew Holiday, Darius or Jalen Brunson. And that's just the guard list, okay? There's also, right. if, we're, if we're talking with four spots available, Jimmy Butler, Bam, Siakam, Julius Randle, it's just a numbers game. And I think he's going to get squeezed. Like, my thinking is of the four spots remaining after the three reserve locks, it's going to be Bam, Siakam, Harden, and then either Jimmy Butler or DeMar DeRozan. Who do you put Garland in front of? Probably none of them. It's tough to make an argument. And he's been good this year. His numbers are very, very similar to what they were last year. In fact, he's averaging a career high in points, slightly, on career best efficiency. He's 11th among East guards in scoring, 5th among guards in assists, and 3rd among guards in total plus minus. But there are a lot of guys having really good seasons. And 
I just think he's going to end up getting squeezed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I mean, go ahead. I mean, you know this, Hayden, we've talked about this in the past. There are guys every single year that you say have performed like all-stars that don't actually make the roster. Yeah. Just have to get used to it. Yep. And I'm glad that last year, you know, the Cavs got their two rappers or three representatives and, uh, you know, I'm glad that that happened for them. Um, and yeah. this year, I think they'll probably end up with one. Yeah, I think it's going to be one. Yeah. I've thought one for a very long time. I I think based on the guards in front of Darius, I think Jared Allen has a better chance than Darius. And I don't think Jared Allen has a great chance to begin with. No. No. So... We'll see. Again, be, the game being in Cleveland last year, I think it meant more to have those guys in that game. And uh, for sure, you know, it's unfortunate that you know they might only have one All Star, but it's not about the amount of All Stars you have. It's about you know getting to where you want to go. I yeah. mean, with uh, with um, with the the Cavs teams with LeBron, I mean, you you didn't really have all that many years with you know all three guys making it. So it's yeah. just again, it's about. It's not about, you know, the all-stars. It's more about, you know, what you do with the guys that you have. So, yeah. Um, and I tweeted this, Hayden, and I also um, expanded on it in my piece because not a lot of people understood it on, on my Twitter, <laughs> which is fine. Yeah. <laughs> you can't really go deep, deep, deep when you have only that many characters. Sure. So Kyrie being a starter, I think hurts Darius, too. Um. It's the first thing that I thought about when um, everything was revealed last night on TNT. And I need to explain it because, like, in no way is this saying that that Kyrie wouldn't have been a worthy starter or a worthy reserve. But the reserves are picked by coaches. And Kyrie Irving has quite a reputation. I think everybody knows it. It's well-established. He's considered a malcontent. He's considered a divider. He's considered a guy who doesn't play a lick of defense, an off-court lightning rod who sometimes is too much trouble than he's worth. So to me, it was fair to wonder, and he hasn't been named an all-star since 2020, 2021, for a variety of reasons. A lot of that has to do with the drama that he creates. So to me, it was fair to wonder whether coaches would have actually given him a spot. Would they have looked at it and said, okay, just way too much baggage, way too much of a headache. We're not going to reward you. Or would they have said like, this dude is a marvelous offensive weapon. He's an obvious choice. I don't think he was a clear cut reserve. I think his best chance to get into the all-star game based on his reputation and based on the fact that coaches pick the reserves. I think his best chance was to get in as a starter voted by his peers, the fans and media members. So had he not been voted in as a starter, I think he would have been a fringy reserve, potentially leaving one of the theoretical guard spots open for somebody else, taking one of the guards out of the mix and giving Darius a better chance. And this is not a conversation about who deserves it more. It's a conversation about 
like how coaches view these guys. Like honestly, Hayden, I think Trey Young is going to have a hard time getting in as a reserve because I don't think coaches like him very much based on everything that has happened with Atlanta and between Trey Young and that organization and Trey Young and well-respected coach Nate McMillan, who has a lot of friends that that are going to make these votes too. So I think reputation and how a coach views these specific guys, um, both on the court and off the court, matters when it comes to these reserve spots. Well, luckily for uh, luckily for Darius, I don't think that'll be an issue. No, I don't think so. I think he's well respected by players in the NBA, and I think he's well respected by coaches in the NBA. I just think there are other guys at that same position um, that have had better seasons, right? More impactful seasons too. All right, Chris. Well, I know you're on the second night of a back-to-back yourself, so we're going to get you out of here. Um, but appreciate the time. Uh, enjoy yourself in Oklahoma City and um, get back to Cleveland safely. Folks, if you haven't already, $3.99 a month, 14-day free trial. Go to Chris's subtext, cleveland.com slash Cavs. Click on the blue banner at the top of the page. Get all of Chris's insight and analysis news sent straight to your phone before anywhere else. Again, $3.99 a month, 14-day free trial. Go get some lunch, my friend. Enjoy the game tonight, and we will talk soon, okay? Sounds good, brother. All right. Thank you, everybody, for joining the Wine and Gold Talk podcast. We will talk to you soon. Take care.